0: I just had a beer with uh, David Dunnage. Do you, remember, do you know Dave? Oh, Christ, yeah. Yeah, I just had a beer with him. I said I was... Uh, How's I was going, he doing? Yeah, he's all right. He's he's in the film game as well now.
1: Is he? Mm. Oh, that's really good to hear that. Oh, nice. I'm glad he's doing well. I used, yeah, I used to... He probably told you, I used to do security with him and his brother.
0: That's it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, um... Yeah. So we brought him on this film what I just filmed because it was a hockey one and I used to play hockey with him.
1: We put brought him on there
0: as an assistant producer. Oh, nice. We met up because he wants me to write a couple of other bits for him. So I was was doing a podcast with you. He's like, oh, mate, so I said hello. (laughs) Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah,
1: mate, I've got some stories, I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) None for public
0: domain. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me when we meet up. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Have you listened to any of my podcasts?
1: Yeah, I've, I've skimmed through a couple of them, yeah.
0: So, you know, yeah. the general sort of, uh, it's more just a informal conversation, get to know you, uh, why you do what you do, how you do what you do and what motivates you pretty much. that's Yeah, nice. Be all and end of it, to be honest with you, mate. I've had some like, good people on as well. I've had uh, the writer of Catch Me If You Can, Legally Blonde. He was on it. That's
1: wicked. Like yeah, yeah. That's yeah. well good, mate. I mean... That's you, you. You're lowering the bar tonight, mate. I will tell you.
0: No, <laughs> no, nah, 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 don't receive. I just, I want people who who have done well at what they do, and just like a passion for what they do. Do you know what I mean? So that's just. Yeah. Um. No, nah, I've had I've had some people who who have done a lot less than you. I've had some people who fucking might consider successful, but at the end of the day, everyone's on their own journey, aren't they?
1: Of course, mate. Yeah, and I think it's um it's important that if you're pursuing anything, really uh like particularly self-employment um it's important to get all those perspectives you know because uh i don't know it, you feel like everything's moving so slowly when you're you're chucking everything at something particularly like if it's in the arts whether it's you know filmmaking or stand-up or whatever it is it's like you know you you you're sort of brought up to think, you know, that is a piss in the ocean that what you're chasing. So mm. it's very easy to feel like you're not getting anywhere because it takes a long time to get good and, and you don't get paid for you know, ages, mate. You know what I mean? So it's like, mm. it, that's why a very few break through mm. because it's, it takes a hell of a lot of personal. You got to really, really want this shit. And that sounds like a cliche, but it really isn't, you
0: know, even even with podcasts, only I think it's only something like two percent make it over twenty-one episodes.
1: Yeah, of course. Which, yeah, mate. I, I I can testify to that. I'm on the radio, and I've 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 done about five, six different podcasts that we've tried, and because it's like it's not just you think like podcast is. Oh yeah, we'll just set up a couple of mics and we'll have a chat with my mates and and we'll upload it. But it's it's way more work than that. You know, it's like you've got to like you've got to consider the size of the server that you need so you need to like you know adjust your ba- like the amount of money you're paying each month to the people that host your podcast accordingly and that's not cheap either you know when you're starting out you've got to have like decent equipment generally speaking if you want to do it you need a good laptop that can handle the the, the recording and stuff so you haven't got things cutting out you've got to be snipping everything down into clips you've got to be putting all that stuff out and you know it's like it's a non-stop job you know it's like and that's why you know same with restaurants mate you know most restaurants fail after the first whatever i don't know it's just really it's just yeah Mm. you you know even podcasts are not as easy as just whacking up the mic the ones that are successful are the ones that have grafted at it put in the effort Mm.
0: yeah definitely man right do you want to start well yeah i thought we (laughs) uh well, I'll cut that bit
1: out. Yeah, we've started, mate. Yeah, carry on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I was on, mate. You know what no, I mean? No, the mate. camera goes on. I'm fucking working.
0: <laughs> 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 Do you know what? I'm just thinking this is fucking gold. I don't, I don't want to miss this out. So let, let's quickly like make sure you know we started. <laughs> yeah, mate. Leave it in. I'm 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 on,
1: mate. I'm always on.
0: <laughs> so so for everyone listening, then how and why. Did you get into stand up? Because stand up's not your stereotypical type thing to get into. It's actually
1: mm-hmm. probably
0: one of the hardest things to actually want to do, confidence wise. So, mm-hmm. what made you start, and and what's 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 kept you going?
1: Well, it's um, I think my story is a bit different to most in that my dad, back in like the late eighties, early nineties, he used to run a nightclub in Southend where I live. Um, that was like super popular. And he set up a comedy night on a Monday night there. But this is like back in, you know, comedy is everywhere now. Everyone knows what stand up comedy is. But like back then, like n- no one knew what it was really. It was a very niche thing, especially alternative comedy. The only comedy that people really knew about back then was like your sort of working men's club, Les Dawson, Bernard Manning, kind of one liner, everyone sharing the same jokes, doing the working men's clubs and all that sort of stuff. And, um, alternative comedy was very very new you know it was something that was kind of founded in around the early 80s by like alexis sale and um a, co- oh, a couple of other people i'll get uh, you know comedians i'll be pissed off that i've not remembered that but you know there was like a core group of like these original comics that sort of said you know we want to do comedy but not like this one-liner-esque way of doing it we want to do it there was three rules no sexism no racism and you do your own jokes And that kind of created this new comedy circuit. Um, And then my old man set up this club like in the late 80s. So it was like there may have only been like 500 comics on that circuit. And his was probably one of the only clubs outside of London, Um, like in this, particularly in the Southeast, one of the very few anyway. And um, yeah, so like, and he was obsessed with it, you know. And this was like back way before this, before the internet, before any of that shit. So like, you know, they used to do, When they used to get flyers printed, the comics would have to... Or the agents of the comics would send physical photos of the comedians through, like headshots. Um, And then the designers would then have to, like, lift them and physically print them to create a poster. It's mad when you think about it. Mm. it? It's it's only, like, fucking 25 years ago or whatever. Um, But, like... My, my old man used to keep those pictures and get every comic to come down to sign them and then got them put up in a frame and they'd all over the walls of his office that he eventually bought home. But we're talking like people like Matt Lucas, uh, Mackenzie Crook, Alan Davis, Lee Evans, Omi Jalili, Harry Hill. Like the list is endless, mate. These people They're that come just... down to Churchill's back in the day because they were the top boys when the circuit was in its infancy. So yeah, so I got brought up around that stuff. And my the, the the real like light bulb moment for me was I was probably about seven or eight, and my dad let me watch Lee Evans's first tour video um live at her Majesty's Theatre. And obviously I was way too young to be watching it, there's so much swearing in it, but I just watched him like cross legged sit two feet from the telly, just pissing myself, you know. Obviously I didn't really get all the references, but it was his physicality and the way he was, you know, when he'd like do like impressions of like his wife or whatever, you know, I would just absolutely die. And I remember like, like even this far on, I remember thinking then like that's, that is 100% what I want to do out of life. You know, him standing up there and just that I was just absolutely fascinated by it. So yeah, like, but I'd already watched. So once I got, as I got a little bit older, Then I used to like get my dad and take me. He started running other gigs outside of church. It was like in sort of community halls and things. And he would like where I would be allowed to go in and he'd take me in with him. And I went to like the Joker Club South End when I was about 11, maybe, or 12. That was like the first comedy club that I went to. Um, And then I set up, I was doing business studies when I was 14 in school and we were allowed to set up our own business. And uh, I said, I wanted to put on a comedy night, obviously. And um, with my dad's contacts, we booked this local theatre, four hundred and twenty seats. I think it was a four, four forty. And um, we booked Lee Hurst, who was like quite big at the time to headline. Mickey Flanagan opened, <laughs> and uh, a guy called Greg Burns. who was another brilliant comic. Was the MC, but yeah. Um, so that was like that was the the start of it. Really, it was like all that stuff happening. Like it was, it's just been a massive part of my life since like, as lo- literally as long as I can remember. Um, but like watching Lee Evans was the point where I thought that's what I want to be but it was still like this pie in the sky dream for a long time but when I set up that business and I made money out of that night I that was when I was like oh actually this is a viable like job option you know what I mean I've, made, mm-hmm. I've done it I've made money so it was no question that I was going to drop out of fucking sixth form and lose 12 grand in the first year of running my first comedy club <laughs> and go in and out of jobs for years and ruin my financial stability and credit rating and everything, you know what I mean? (laughs) But would you change it?
0: No, absolutely (laughs) not. So so you you actually got into stand-up after you started putting on shows, which Mm. I think is probably not the most common thing.
1: No, no, yeah. I mean, I think, like, I'd say every comedy promoter wishes they were a comedian. But like you know, I wished I was like I, my my dad was a promoter, you know, a club promoter, and then a comedy promoter, and I I was only ever started to set up gigs because I just i was so obsessed with stand up, I just couldn't imagine it not being like a, you know a regular part of my life. So like you know, the first club I set up, I was seventeen. It was like we'd just left six form. Me and my mate Matt Adlington, who's now another great comic, um, reason why we met. Dad set. Sorry. The reason why we met, weren't it, Matt? It is, yeah. You did make that introduction, yeah. Mm. Um, Yeah, like, we set up this comedy club. Like I said, we genuinely did lose 12 grand in the first year, you know, because you've got all this optimism and naivety around, I would book them and they will come. But, like, in practice, that's just not the case, you know. Like, we'd picked a venue that had a reputation for being a shithole. So although we were putting, like, the best comedy in the country in it for seven quid, people were like, I ain't paying seven quid to go in there. Yeah. And people we were like, what do you mean? It's not, you know, it's not that, it ain't that club anymore. It's like, you know, it's, that, it's Funny Bunny's comedy club with, you know, the best acts on the circuit. But, you know, it took a long time, a lot of consistency um, before it made any money. You know, it was, uh... what was your question again? I've got a mad tangent. Um, I
0: said, I said, it's not the usual way for... Uh, so, oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah.
1: So the point being is that I, I was only... Ever really doing it because I wanted to be a comedian, right? But Mm -hmm. and I tried to write stuff, but because I think being in the the comedy industry so young is both a blessing and a curse. Because like because I'd been absorbed, I'd absorbed so much comedy from like you know seven right up till you know when did I do my first gig? Twenty thirteen, so like I was twenty five, yeah, twenty five when I did my first gig. You know, all that time, like, when I was young and I really was trying to write materials, 17, 18, 19, I was just kind of, like, emulating other acts that I'd seen. There was no originality there, and it was, like, I'm just writing about having a shit and a wank because that's all you've fucking done at that age, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it was, like, it was a weird turn of events that made me start do like actually take the leap to do stand-up it wasn't like a long thing that i'd been thinking about it's like it's always at the back of my mind something that i'd wanted to do but i could never imagine doing it mm. um and um yeah, it just sort of happened one day so how did that happen uh well john Oakes, who's uh, my best mate and the guy that i present my radio show weekend breakfast on radio essex um he, I'd only just met him. We'd only been mates for like a couple of months, and I, like I was some of the. I when I, I had funny bunnies at that club, and I was seventeen when I set up. I wasn't even old enough to be in there, and I um, the day after my eighteenth birthday, I got offered a job behind the bar, which I took, and then I was like, in the nightclub industry in Southend, uh, right up until uh, probably about five six years. But I'd I climbed the ladder pretty quick because I was so young, and I'd been running. I'd ended up taking that that comedy club I had like two three hundred people in it, mate, on a Thursday night. By the time I'd finished with it, and it was like pe- the, the the other bosses of the other nightclubs around town used to come down and book the same booth and watch the comedy every time. And as soon as I turned eighteen and started working in a bar, they were already like, you know, this guy we need to get this kid in because he obviously has got something like a flair for promoting or whatever. Um, and I ended up working as Uh, promotions manager at Baker's Bar, which was like an 1100 capacity nightclub at the age of 19, mate. So Baron John's suit, earpiece, just absolutely fucking flossing. Um, So I ended up, and then from that, I went into DJing because I just loved like the, there was DJs like Keith Kelsey and stuff that were like personality jocks, not like today where it's like, you know, yeah, they could mix and that, but they, they used to play the room, like Fat Boy Slim would turn up at, Glastonbury with all his tunes not his hour-long set brings all the tunes and he plays the crowd in front of him mm-hmm. and that's what these person and they'd be on the mic and they'd be like bantering with people and and I used to watch them and just think I need that mate that's what I want to do I, like the way they'd have like the whole club in the palm of their hand so I started learning to DJ my dad was, his background was DJing as well so it didn't take me and I had quite a good knowledge of sort of party music if you like um so I started doing that and doing parties and then um Lot the short version is I I went from doing like parties and mobiles to end up like getting like a, a really good job as a resident DJ at this roller rink right, which sounds horrendous as horrendous as it is, but it paid really good money. Self employed, I did that for a year, and then one day they were just like, "Yeah, we're going to use iTunes from now on." So thanks, see you later. And it was like I'd gone from like four hundred pound a week to fucking nothing, right? And I was I I, I went into this spiral of like. But i reckon on the cusp of depression maybe it was depression i don't know but i felt depressed i felt like everything i'd, I'd cleared out all my diaries all that work i'd done getting all these mobile discos in had gone and i'd have to start from scratch and i'd rent to pay uh, which ironically was my landlord was the bloke who fucking sacked me from all <laughs> the you know i mean it was a right wank like horrendous situation and um I, my missus got me to watch, Holly, she got me to watch The Secret, which is like this thing about uh, like this the law of attraction and stuff, right? And it is, I'm not into any spirituality stuff. I'm, you know, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in astrology and all that stuff. But I thought, it, I watched it and I was like, well, you know, even if you... Just follow some of it. All it will do is make you feel more positive. You know that is the idea: is that you put what you put out is what you bring in. Yeah. So if you're like, if you're always negative, oh this is happening and this is happening, you just attract more of that stuff. But if you're more like focusing on what's good and what you're grateful for, then better things happen. And I thought, well, literally the worst that can happen is I just I'm trying to make myself feel happier. Yeah. So I did a vision board. Um, and it was all comedy, mate. Stand up comedy that was my dream. That's what I'm putting my energy into. So I just put like pictures of live at the Apollo, all this stuff, and I'd look at it every morning. And I'd go for a shit, and I'd sit there and close my eyes every day. And I'd imagine the smoke and like the screen lifting up of live at the Apollo. And it was this thing that this routine that I'd got myself into. And uh, after about two, three weeks of doing that, I was having a beer with John Oakes, and he goes, Uh, you know, I've always, uh, totally unprompted, I've not had this conversation with anyone, this was just for me, he was like, I've always wanted to give stand-up a go. And I'm obviously half cut, and I'm like, it's a sign, it's yeah. the law of attraction. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to do it, I'm going to ring up my mate now, he runs a gig, and this is like, this gig is one of the most like, prolific, uh, most infamous, new, like, new material nights in the whole of London. There's queues of acts waiting to get on, but because I knew Math, who's a, one of my absolute, uh, he's a diamond, this guy, he I he used to gig for me at Funny Bunnies and my dad and I rang him pissed on like a Tuesday night and was like, Math, me and my mate, want to give you stand up a go. We want 10 minutes in three months' time. And he's like, Yeah, all right, fuck it. We have this date, 18th of March. <laughs> and uh I woke up in the morning with like banging a banging headache, going, What have I done? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But look, I've always said it that like pressure creates diamonds and having that that deadline, like it just it forced me to to make it happen I wasn't going to not do it so it was like I just I felt I felt in a way I guess in a little way I felt like that might have been something maybe because I've been more positive that things just presented itself and you know chances are I, I later find out that scientifically you know like when you're like if you're, if you're looking at red courses you'll just start seeing red courses everywhere
0: mm.
1: it's like something to do with your brain only being able to focus on a certain amount of things so if that's what you're thinking about, you will just automatically pick out those things. You know what I mean? Wow. So actually there might be some science behind just being a bit more positive and like focusing on the things that you do want will present more opportunities that align with that thing. Right. Hmm. So yeah, anyway, we have done the first gig and, um, and it went well. John said to me on the tube, on, on the train on the way up there, he was like, it, what, what if this goes well? I was like, if this goes well, mate, you won't see me for dust. And I truly mean that. I was like, I will be out every single night of the week. You know, if I'd have bombed that night, I don't know whether I would have ever done it again. Mm. Maybe I would have done it or tried it once or twice, but you know, I watch it back and it was obviously shit. Mm. But I'd got like some laughs out of them enough to like think, well, I've obviously got something in there. And, and yeah, that's it.
0: I was going to say, do you still use any of the same jokes you used back then or all completely different now?
1: No, well, funnily enough, I was on Mark Simmons' uh, jokes with Mark podcast. It's a great podcast, by the way. if You should listen to it. And he sort of like looks at <clears throat> jokes that, are, that that might not be working. He asks uh, the same question, and like I, I, I actually used it on Tuesday night. I did a gig and on Tuesday night, and it was like my. You've heard it before, the bear with me joke, right? Yeah. I don't know if you remember it, but it was yeah, like do, yeah. that was the first joke I wrote. Literally, it was like it was a joke that I knew that I just a story I had of something that actually happened that was like a routine before I even thought about, you know, writing it as a routine. It was just when I thought what things have happened in my life that I can write, put on this page and maybe talk about on stage. And the first thing that sprung to mind was that bear with me conversation. And like the short version of that is I used to work at a call center and they said, you can't say bear with me on the phone (laughs) in case someone thinks there's a bear with you. And that was genuinely something that was said with not a hint of irony. And I was like, you know, What? How many log cabin call centers have you got in Canada where there's a genuine possibility of that happening? You know, but it ripped like you know out of all the jokes I had, it rips and it became like it stayed in my. Whereas everything else dropped out, that gag stayed there for ages. And I remember loads of people saying to me like, "Oh, you know you've you know you're you're doing something right when you drop that gag from your set because it's like you know, and it's gone now. It's not in my set. Like it's there and there's nothing wrong with it. I've just got better stuff now." and but like you know i did a gig on tuesday i was talking to someone they worked in a call center and i was like bang there you go I have that and it's like nice yeah, to yeah. have it in your life but yeah. yeah i've got none of no, no more a completely different set now to when i started yeah
0: that joke is probably the the most memorable joke for me for you like when we and from like, everyone mate yeah. everyone
1: people always quote that shit at me <laughs> the amount of people that send me pictures they'll find a bear picture so like on a, on a wall somewhere and it'll just be there with a the bear and i'll get the you know it's lovely, really. Um, but um yeah, at the same time, it's like it's quite an obvious observation. Do you know what I mean? And I think mm. like the, the funny thing about it is is that it is it was something that genuinely did happen, like, but it sounds so obvious. Yeah. it's a bit of a groaner, do you know what I mean? Like, oh, you know. But I think yeah, I don't I, I don't know, maybe it's just because I, I told it for so long, I got so sick of it that I was like, I couldn't wait to drop it. You know, there's something to be said for like when you're a bit tired of a joke. You just don't sell it with the same psychologically. You just don't sell it the way you used to, and it's like I found it started not getting less and less. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'll just fuck it off. And but yeah, yeah, no, I don't need it now. So something.
0: <laughs> do you still find your jokes funny? Like obviously, you you wrote them, um, you've said them over and over again. Do you still laugh at your own jokes, or is it just sort of you're just better at selling it?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I mean, like. Obviously, everything that I talk about, I think, is funny at the point of the idea. Do you know what I mean? But they all eventually just become... It's like muscle memory, isn't it? It's like once, you, once you've found it, like found... And when I say found it, it is a journey trying to find it. You know, and you've got a new routine or whatever, there is a process. It's not like an overnight thing. Oh, bang, this idea's falling out of the sky and, and now it's a joke. It's like that's the idea Let's go to like a new material night. Work it for the first time under pressure. Listen to it back. Think, right, okay, I need to trim the fat. I'm over explaining it here. Or or there was a laugh there that I weren't expecting. So maybe I move that part to there and work back with, you know, all this stuff. It's like by the time I've probably done a joke, maybe at least four or five times before I'm like putting it into a regular set, if it's a good joke so i think like by that time you're overanalyzing every every aspect of it it's like it's not you still believe it's funny so you will set you know and you sell it as as such but you don't find it funny in the same way it's like obviously you think the premise is funny but i don't like sort of i'm not like going for a piss and thing <laughs> you know what i mean just laughing at yeah. laughing at a joke and telling for a while it sort of becomes not scripted but scripted it's the same every time you tell it pretty yeah, much. Yeah.
0: So how... how what, I mean, you kind of went on to it. So what is the um, process of finding a joke? How do you find a joke? Because it's literally just saying everyday life, you think that's funny, and then you just try and work a sentence around it.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, the, the weird thing about comedy is, like, with, with stand-up is that... Mo- like I'd say most people get into stand-up because they think they're funny. You know, like, you're you're funny in your group of mates. Like, we all... All those class clowns and the and the jokers among us, the confident ones, or the not comp- confident, yes, but um oh what's the fucking word? I completely blank. Extroverts mm. among us. When they recount stories that's happened to them, they'll recount it the same to each person they tell it to, right? So it's like you, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today. I was walking down the supermarket and the wind blew this trolley smashed into me and this geezer fell over a banana skin it's like you will tell that story once that way the people that you're telling it to will laugh in the same spots of that story that you're telling so then you'll tell that story again to the next person you tell and then you'll and you've heard people they've told you the story and now you're hearing them tell someone else the same story same beat same everything yeah. that's that's a routine you know and it's like we we Tell those stories, and then we go, Right, I'm going to be a comedian now. And we write those stories down, and then when we deliver it on stage, we're like rigid. Uh, and then this happened, and then that happened, and this. And we spend years, and I mean years, Frankie, trying to talk, learn learning to talk in the voice that we talk when we're not on stage. You know, they call it finding your voice. And it's like people the older comics would, when I asked them for advice in the early days, they'd be like, oh, You just got to find your voice, Ross. And I'd be like oh great, thanks, mate. And then he'd walk away and I'd be like, oh, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> but like I, I know now, you know, it's like it's it's not an overnight thing, but I've got that gig the Alex that I run every Sunday, which is a new material night. I've been running it for 10 years and I forced myself to go down there week in, week out, and especially when I didn't want to do it. And you know, now I'm so I, I got so comfortable there that I could just sit on a stall and just talk about my week, about my day. And they all trust me and I'm relaxed in their company. And it's just, if something doesn't work, we just reference it. It don't work. And then they all laugh and I'm like, oh, well, I'll never do that again. Cross it out. You know what I mean? They were... So yeah, I think like the process now is like you is like, it's is just or the process is just recognizing when you're telling those stories, when those things have happened to you, that that is a bit and then forcing yourself to write it down and making that you know, a habit. It's, um, I'll probably show you on my phone quickly, but I've got this, uh, I've got just simply the notes on my iPhone. I don't know. If you can see that it says gags at the top mm. and there's loads and loads and loads of like little sentences just oh, to yeah. remind me yeah. of a thought like, and and, it, and now it's so ingrained. It ruins social situations because you'll be like the conversations flowing. And I'm saying something, and everyone's laughing. And then the second they all start laughing, I'm like, bang, phone out. I got to write that down. And it's like, you know, kill the energy in the room straight away. But you, but you have you have to be like that because like the amount of stuff, Frank, that that has just gone mm. that I've said and it's just gone, and it's like that could be particularly as a pro now. Like I, own my, this is my living. Every one of those bits is is money, mate. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, yeah. if I could. Get that, just getting that bit, that that, ne- that next banker, you know. So, yeah, I, I write a note in there to remind me of w- the thought process at the time of whatever it is I'm thinking about, whatever it is I was talking about. And then I, me personally, I then go and do a gig, a low-status a low gig, one that I'm not getting paid for, like a new material night, like my gig, the Alex, for example. I'll go down there with that idea and I'll just start talking about it on stage because I work better under that sort of pressure. My brain will unpack it in a way that is funny, hopefully. Mm. And then I'll, I'll record it. And then I'll listen to that back and, and then analyze how it went. And then I'll go down and do it again. You know, at the Alex again in the next week or the week after or whatever. And, uh, until, and, yeah, and there's some, you know, some things, sometimes gags are just a gag straight away. Sometimes very rarely, but a gag will fall out the sky and you'll go and tell it the first time and it'll get a big laugh and you'll be like, cool, oh, that only needs a little tweak here or there. And then bang, you're in. But some gags, I've got like one story that I've been trying to get to work for fucking years, and I love it and believe in it. And I think it's really good, but it just hasn't got the punchline that it needs. And, you know, I keep going, I keep going back to it and then not telling it for ages and then going back to it again. But now I'm writing an Edinburgh show, like a lot, which is like a long form 40 minute show that I'm doing. So, you know, I need the longer stories. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to make it work.
0: But, in no, we'll pressure what... of having to make it work will probably make it work,
1: yeah, yeah, well, hopefully <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, so that that moves me on to the next one last feeling about so what's what's the best best gig you've ever done with the best reception and and the worst where you've absolutely bombed?
1: Oh God, well, I've got the bombing story down <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: um I like when you first start out in comedy, you have to go out and do open spots, which we touched on earlier, which is like basically unpaid five or 10 minute spots um, in order to get seen and hopefully get booked again. And there's a a club in Manchester called the Frog and Bucket, which is like, it's like the comedy, they've got a comedy store in Manchester, but I'd say the Frog and Bucket is probably more famous than the comedy store in Manchester. You know, it's very prolific purpose-built comedy venue. Um, And I did an open spot up there one day on a Thursday night um, and I'd got the mega bus up there cause it was like seven quid return or something stupid, but I'd like, it was such a long, journey. I like left my house at like seven in the morning and, and I got there at like half past eight at night or like eight o'clock at night and I was on at half eight. I did the 10 minute and it was like a semi empty room, to be honest, like maybe it holds 400. There might've been hundred people in there and they were very nice and I'd done well for the 10 minutes. Um, got back on the Megabus, went home, got booked for the full weekend, which is what you want. You know, it's paid for every, a Friday and a Saturday and you book like a little Ibis hotel or whatever and you do the full weekend. But I was definitely not ready for that. Like my problem was in the early days was that I had a really solid 10 minute, but I didn't have a 20. So it's like, if, if you if you do well as a 10 and you want to get booked for paid work, the paid slots are 20 minutes. And, you know, all of my material is 20 minutes and most of it's shit. So it's like really to have a strong 20 minute set, you need like 40 minutes to an hour's worth of material in the, in the can. You know what I mean? But anyway, you know, you say yes and you work it out later. So I was like, yeah, great. Thanks. And then like I had that gig in a couple of months time and I thought, yeah, it'd be fine. And mate, it was not fine. It was not fine. Spoiler alert. It was not (laughs) fucking fine. We'd like same story with the mega bus. I did traffic on the way up there as well. So I'd got there late. I was like, I walked through the door. I'd been travelling for 15 hours and I was on in like five minutes, right? And I've walked on to like, the, the act that was on was amazing. Steve Shaniaski, incredible act. He's like Lee Evans with the energy. And there's 450 people in this room just folded over laughing their, their eyes out of their head. You know what I mean? Stag do's, hen do's. I literally ran up to the great the green room splashed water in my face, had a beer put in my hand and I was like ready to go to the stage, walked on, did my opening joke, which was the bear with me joke and got to like the the first punchline in it was like, in case they think there is a bear with you. Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Like like, a comedy (laughs) from the back of the room, (laughs) do you know what I mean? And honestly, mate, I just did, I did 16 minutes of the 20s, complete silence. The woman didn't even look at me when she gave me the money at the end. She was just like, "There you go." Right, and then I had to go back there the next night, Frank, and do it all over again, mate. No. And you think, "Oh, tomorrow will be different." So I went there. <laughs> Spoiler alert: It wasn't fucking different. <laughs> yeah, same thing, mate. Just got there, did the joke, bombed catastrophically, and then had to get on a, a an eight hour mega bus back home. <laughs> to think about what
0: i'd done did you think about quitting at that point
1: no didn't even cross my mind mate i think like like i say i get why it does people but like you uh, and look it might have been a different story if my first handful of gigs didn't go well do you know what i mean because i think once you've got like say five to ten gigs under your belt and you've done up uh, you've done well at all of those you've got laughs throughout all of them you know you know that your stuff's funny by then you know that you've got some it you know, you're not there, but you know you've got something. So it's like that makes the bombing a little bit easier to take. You know, I didn't, I've didn't. i had runs of bad gigs. You get that even now, and you, then you start, the self-doubt creeps in even now. You're like, have I just been chancing it this whole time or what, you know? But, like, it never crossed my mind to to stop, even at that point. It was just like, you know, that's happened now, and it's going to feel shit for a few days. But, you know, I'm just, I mean, I'm gigging at a pub in Peckham in t- in tomorrow night. So we'll just, you know. You're only as good as your last gig, right?
0: So, so why, um, why does the same jokes sometimes work on some audiences and not not the others? Is it a regional thing, or
1: mate? Many, many, many variables. Many, many variables. Comedy's so subjective, you know. Yeah, uh, uh, class is di- you know, working class audiences are different to middle upper class audiences. Um, So area can make a difference, yeah, definitely, depending on which area in the country you're in, but not that much of a difference, you know, it's it's just, yeah, there's just so many different factors involved, isn't there? Is the room set up right? You know, are they facing the right way? Have the other comedians been any good? Is there someone in the audience that's pissed and is making everyone annoyed because they're pissed you know people forget that there's a lot of science involved in getting people to just laugh organically you've got to be very relaxed you know i mean if you're sitting there thinking that gaze is getting on my tits even -hmm. if you want the show to work and you're enjoying the show you're gonna have to force that laughter now and once you you know once you start forcing it, it makes it a harder gig so you know i think yeah like like i said there's a you can have things like location and things like that um you could blame stuff like that. And that does make a difference sometimes, but there's so many different factors involved in getting people to laugh in the right places that, you know, it's just one of them things, isn't it?
0: Do you remember the the gig what we'd done? It was the last gig what we'd done before we actually worked together um, in the pub in Averley when there was a, re- I think it was that one. No, it wasn't. It was a football club. I think we was actually working together at this point. It was a football club and the woman just never stopped shouting out. Do you remember that one? Oh
1: mate, yeah, I do remember that one. Was that the one with Toshio in it? Was he? Was that that one?
0: No, that
1: was was Avonley Football Club. Avonley Foot. I, I do remember it. Yeah, I remember yeah. it being raw. I remember there being a table of like the the football team were down there, weren't they? Like the under 18s or whatever. That's or whatever. it. Yeah,
0: they did the the venue. Didn't it was Avery Football Club. They just moved into a new venue. We'd done one with Toshio, and that went really well. To be honest, I don't know how Toshio didn't get. Chin that night, the way he ran off. <laughs>
1: so, yeah, the, the geezer is wild, isn't he? He's a very funny guy, Tojo. <laughs> yeah. Just an absolute, yeah, he's a, he's a wild card, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: uh, it was my mate as well. Like, obviously, he was going for my mate's girl. <laughs> my yeah, mate, yeah. I was sitting there thinking, oh my God, don't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> but that one went well. and then we booked a second one there, and we had a, a table of, of just women middle-aged women were absolutely pissed and one of them everything what was said she just shouted out and i can't remember i think it was it was either you or we had the canadian woman who was hosting i feel you like you might have been the main act and then someone just went mental just tried to tell us to shut up she just wouldn't listen but like that it it was a good night but then you had the the under eighteen football team sitting there as well because the venue didn't sell any tickets, so they just tried to yeah. fill it up with like the football team. They didn't want to be there. One of them was a brother of a Premiership footballer, and you started proper t- like proper digging him out.
1: Oh god, <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Jesus Christ, yeah, that,
0: that was an. Odd oh gig. mate,
1: yeah, I mean, look, I we still have gigs like that now. They're they literally a regular occurrence, mate. You know. Mm. It's just people the thing is on paper comedy seems like a good idea to a lot of places, but like it you know, it's not a case of just whack a mic in the corner and sit everyone down. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's more to it than that there.
0: So what what in your opinion makes a good comedy no, uh, venue?
1: You've got to have the lighting and the sound is so important. Like it's not something that you can cut corners with. If you want to put on a good comedy night and you want the comedians to have a good time and you want your audience to come back, and you haven't got speakers like a decent sound system and and lights, then you can't put on a comedy night. You know, and I'm like it's the same as a DJ having no decks. Right? Mm. It's like that is just as important to a comedy night as having a set of decks for a, a wedding DJ. You know, at the end of the day, you want to give your night the very best chance of success. So you need to make that venue, whatever it is, as close to a theatre scenario as you can get it. You know, the best shows in the world are in theatres and theatres have got proper lights and proper sound. And you're never going to get like, I'm not saying that millions of pounds worth of kit, but just like, you know, that is that is the most important thing. So a room that you can make completely dark and light up the stage um, with seats, preferably in rows, like auditorium style, everyone packed in tight. You know, you, you comedy, you catch laughter off other people. Having everyone spread out and having big tables in between everyone just kills it, mate. You know, th- you want to get an atmosphere in there quickly, get them all packed in tight, close together, all facing the right way. In darkness, they feel self-conscious when they're lit even if they don't realise they do, they do, and then the laughter don't come organically as quickly as, po- as you'd want it to.
0: Recording in progress. Oh, Can you hear me? Yeah, mate. You're right. <laughs>
1: That's Zoom's way of telling me I've been talking too much. (laughs) That's
0: right, mate. No worries.
1: Um,
0: Yeah, so Uh, complete Darkness.
1: Yeah, like candles on the tables are fine. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But like there's, like I say, you want to give it the best chance but you go to any of the best comedy clubs in the world and you know, the audience is dark, the stage is light, the sound is good, Mm. the the people are sat like packed in either in rows like the comedy store or at the very least small tables to put drinks on do you know what i mean like the american style way of doing it you know it's like all those things if you get all those things right mate and then you book a decent lineup you know the the audience are going to have a good time if you have one of those things not right like if if you haven't got a spotlight which is the most common thing spotlight not a spotlight but like park cans or whatever if you haven't got lights on a stage then you're gonna have to light the whole room to light them and i'm telling you it will be a harder gig for the comedians there's no two ways about it mm-hmm. they're lit like that and you're all in the same light it's just you know they're gonna have to work harder and it, that means you're gonna need better comedians and they cost more money and so on and so forth, you know? So I think like if you just follow those things, get a good, you know, make sure you've got a good PA, make sure you, you invest like hundred odd quid in some lights and a stand to put them on. Um, and then, you know, have everyone as tightly together as you can get them so that everyone's still comfortable as close to the stage as you can get them. And one of the biggest things people do when they set up rooms is put a massive gap between the stage and the front row. And it's like, maybe in a band, yeah, and you've got a bit of dance floor area or whatever, but like for comedy, mate, no. Like as close to me as you could possibly get so that their feet aren't on the stage, that's what that's how it should be, in my opinion.
0: So, obviously, when I was setting up rooms, I was a very, very, very novice at it. I mean, I don't, how old was I? I must have been 19, 20, never done comedy before, just, just done it because I thought, I can make a few quid out of it pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And uh I think my my thinking was because I remember we done one gig and I didn't I, I, there weren't no mics. Someone was supposed to bring a mic, they didn't bring the mic and obviously he said to me about that's even if it's just have even if it's not on just having silence a hold is a psychological thing. But I think when I was setting up the gigs I didn't put I wasn't as close with the stage because I think I was worried about more heckler, uh, hecklers uh, you've been able to hear hecklers and putting you off. but
1: Yeah, but you, you know, you, you need to hear that. You know, hecklers mm. will fuck a gig, mate. And it's like, you know, if you've got comedians worth their salt, they'll be able to handle it anyway. And actually having them close to the stage makes them less likely to shout things out, you know, because they feel like, when you start putting people way back in the darkness, you know, they feel a little bit too comfortable. You know, as a compare now, like let like, you learn this through, you know, just years of doing it and putting in the legwork. I'm always like looking for the where the problems might be at the start of a gig. You know, any compare worth the salt will have a little scan of that room and, you know, think about people who we might they might talk to, people who might be a little bit pissed already. You know, and like in most alpha males, and it's because I say alpha males because it's generally alpha males who initiate heckling. Well, actually saying that. Women get, I guess a lot of pissed women that shout things out, mate, at gigs, you know what I mean? (laughs) I think like, for me, I'll look for like, the table of geezers, you know, like the group of lads who are like, doing sambukas at the bar, and like, they're in the toilet going, oh, are you going to fucking shout anything out? You know, if I'm emceeing a gig, I'm going for that table first, mate, like before they're too pissed. Because the last thing like alpha males want is to, have their pants taken down in front of their mates when they're still sober enough to to have some sort of self-awareness, you know. If you just think, right, I'm going to ignore that table and in the opening 10 minutes they might be, you might hear like a little bit of murmuring coming from that table or whatever, but you just let it go because you're like, oh yeah, I don't want any problems. Like you can guarantee in that break they're going to sink another couple of shots and another couple of beers and then that problem is going to be a bigger problem, but they're going to be too pissed for you to be able to properly deal with it, you know, without making the whole room stink and um, so yeah I think like having everyone close to you is like you know you get it I've had like a a gig many a times even in that situation where but someone will shout something out but I'll come back and be like bang and then it's like you know they don't want that smoke mate but when they're like way over in the in the uh, on a table right in the corner of the room with their mates now it's like us and them but Mm. when they're sat right here on top of me it's like you know you're in my Office and like, I'm not having that. Do you know what I mean? There is an element of that. There's exceptions to every rule, Frank. Do you know what I mean? But like, it's, it's, it's not hard to have all the seats close together, have it close to the stage and facing the right way, you know? And you'd be surprised how many gigs don't even get that right. Do you know what I mean?
0: What do you think when you turn up to a gig and they've not got even that right? Does it put you off straight away or do you just think, oh, I've, I've been here before I deal with it?
1: Yeah, well, I get, you know, it gives me the ump. You know, I don't, I want to, I want to, everyone wants an easy day at work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like anything. Everyone wants, wants their job to be easy. It's like, you know, but yeah, but what are you going to do? I'm, you know, I'm there. Like I, I'm fortunate that now at the, my, my stage of my career, I don't walk into gigs that I'm not getting paid for. So it's like, even if I walk in and that's, it is like that. It's like, well, you know, it is what it is. And I'll go up there and if I die in, And they all think I'm shit, which they will do, you know, because that's the thing. It's like if you don't set that room up properly that and and the comedian dies, they're not thinking, oh, that promoter was shit. Didn't give that comedian the best chance. They're thinking that guy is dog shit, mate. He's crap. You know, it's like, but I I just don't care about that anymore. You know, no one likes to feel it. And when I'm up there, I feel horrible and I'm leaking out my face and uh, it's just it feels horrible. But I don't lose sleep over it. I don't drive home and think, "Oh my god, I'm terrible at this." I'm like, you know, they're a bunch of cunts. And that gig was shit. Sorry. <laughs> but do you know what I mean. It's like, but I've been going long enough, and I've been throwing enough crap at the wall to know that I, I you know, is it's not my fault in that instance. You know, mm. it's just one of those things.
0: Do you remember a gig we had when a woman—I won't say any names—but a woman, she was a really, really funny, talented comedian. I don't know, I don't know what she's doing now, to be fair. But she jumped, she got up on stage, she said one joke, and then she f- completely froze and then ran off stage. Do you remember that one?
1: Oh, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, what? yeah, I do.
0: Yeah. What? I mean, Go yeah, on. Think... What? Like, what, what? As a comedian, like, what? What would be going through your head? Because she was a good, she was a good comedian. She was really good. Mm. That's obviously why I booked her. She was a paid slot as well. Like, What do you think was going through her head at that point? And, and what advice would you give to, to be able to get over that next time?
1: Fucking don't panic, mate. Don't panic. You know, and it's the easiest thing said. Mm. But, like, you can, if you're, if you're really, like, in tune with yourself, you can feel when that panic's starting to, when it's starting to happen. I get it even now on a regular basis. You know, sometimes it's like, if something throws me off and like, you know, we have like, in it, that muscle memory of like telling the joke, but our brains are now working at like what's next or if this person's a problem I need to deal with that or whatever, or like someone will heckle you and you're trying to find something for them. You're talking, but you're trying to find something to fill that gap. And it's like, you, like you can feel yourself and you, and you know, and I feel it happening. And then I'm like, don't, fucking let this happen just slow down deep breath and then i get i gather myself and i don't let it spiral you know but it's like i've had it happen once in my in the 10 years i've been doing it i couldn't tell you why it was this particular gig it wasn't even a particularly horrible gig i wasn't even having a bad gig frank but i just got to a point in my set the same set i've been doing week in week out and i just could not fucking remember what was coming next but i let the panic win like I let, like I'm telling a joke and my brain is going, you don't know what the next bit is. You don't know what the next bit is. You don't know what the next bit is. You're running out of time. You're going to tell that joke. You don't know what's coming next. You don't know what's going Now you're silent. Now you're going to have to say that you don't know what's coming next because it's getting awkward in the room. And you know, that's the first and only time it's happened to me. And I found myself and I did it, but it was hard. It was fucking horrible. And like, you know, now like I, d- I did a Russell Kane tour support recently like eight nine hundred seat theater, and like I walked out, and the mic w- weren't up on the minute I walked out. So like I walked out, I said something, and they hadn't heard it, and I knew that they hadn't heard it. So I've like sort of said it again, but then it's come on halfway through the sentence, and it just got me off to like you know that's the key moment for me. He's like I'm, I'm like that's when I'm at the peak nervousness. I need to get out there, get a laugh quick. As soon as I get the laugh shoulders drop and i'm in it right but that first moment super important and the sound engineer fucking fucked me you know what i mean (laughs) but like i I, I, then i felt the panic set in because i like tripped over my words where i was trying to like you know and i'm gripping the mic so tight but i've just i've been doing it long enough now that i knew what was happening and i was just like in that moment could just go just calm down just breathe and just like carry on and, and they would never have even known that there was anything wrong Mm. But I think, like, you know, I've seen it happen not just to that person that you're talking about, but, like, I've seen it happen to a few acts that just get – they just get that – mo. you know, that was a difficult gig uh, that they were doing, that people had, like, been heckly that night. There was people talking around the thing. And, you know, if she ain't got the tool set to- – you can be a great comic and not have the tool set to deal with that. You know, that's not a bad thing that you haven't got that tool set. It's not something that you should have to have. Mm. It- but it's like, if she – I don't know. She just felt the pressure of that moment, and and, and the, the panic won. I think is what happened there. Yeah. So yeah, I feel and man. It was horrible.
0: Yeah, yeah, I remember I I, I give her, her money, and she was like, "I don't deserve this." I was like, "You still turned up. And you've done it. Like, yeah, yeah. You, you, you're getting yeah, paid that's to, come to do, the drink. Drink. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, I feel I felt terrible. I actually offered to buy her another drink because I think I think she needed it. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh god, it's just yeah, it's just awful, isn't it?
0: The one thing what I'll never forget as well. So when we first met, obviously, so as mentioned before, I had booked Matt for one of my gigs. And he messaged me and said, uh, can you come down? You want to try some new material? I'd already overbooked the gig because I was really nervous about this gig. Because uh, it was, I think, it was my biggest one to date, seater wise So I was yeah. nervous. I, I had a few free comedians down. I, I had more comedians... On that gig than what I should have had anyway, so it was kind of a very fast gig, um, people one and yeah. on, which probably wasn't the best thing to do. But you come on and smashed it, and then obviously we spoke after, and you said about working together. And one of the things that you said to me was, I always offer to buy, uh, I always put all the comedians in the green room, and even the free acts, I always buy them a drink, make them for welcome, everything like that. Now, I remember you saying to me, a lot of promoters don't do that for free acts. Yeah, true. What? What? Why? Why not? Like, what's what's the thinking behind that? Because to me, at the end of the day, everyone's there to to help me make a good show. Like at the end of the day, it's, it's my show. It's my name. It's my promotion. Yeah. So everyone's there That's to help me mate. more than anything. As, as ego as that sounds, um, so why don't people sort of do that and 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 treat the free acts with the same respect? As oh them? yeah, because
1: right. I suppose it's the same as as everything in society is. There's a hierarchy, and people see open spots as the, at the bottom of it. You know what I mean? Mm. Like that was one thing my old man drilled into me when I was running gigs was that the comedians are always a priority. You are not doing them a favour. They are mm. doing you a favour. Treat all of them, even the shit ones like they are the best thing since sliced bread. Give them a drink. If you can give them food, give them food, like whatever they want, you give it to them mm. and you thank them and you're grateful always because you never know who they'll end up being ever, you know? And it's like, you know, there's acts, some of the best acts in the country come and do gigs for me for next to fuck all because they know I put on a good gig and I've always, and I always looked after him, always. You know, and I think like that, that's why, you know, I would always come and gig for you and I would always do your podcast and do your stuff, Frank, because you looked after me, mate. Do you know what I mean? When I was on my way up, I did your gig and it's like, you were just finding your feet, but you were honest about that. You weren't trying to be anything you weren't. You know what I mean? You're like open with it. This is my a new thing I'm doing. I'm trying to make this work. You you were you wanted advice. You went out and sorted it out. You you, you made sure we were all looked after, that we were comfortable. And it's like, you know, that goes a long way with, with axe, mate. You know, we're all out here eating a massive shit sandwich. It's so hard to do what we do and to get successful at it. And most people just you feel like you're the bottom of the barrel. You're traveling all over the country by public transport or whatever, sitting in traffic, not getting paid you know you get to a gig the amount of times mate i've done like i'd do like a four hour fucking journey to do a 10 minute open spot for no money i'd get in and the promoter would barely even look at me in the eyes he'd be like yeah all right go and sit down over there you know i'd have to buy it he wouldn't there'd no offer of a drink you'd have to go and get your own, ask your own water and you know it's like oh yeah i'll bump you down the bill because you're you know so and so's turned up so you're going to be on after this person now and it's like Oh, yeah, thanks, mate. You know what I mean? You do the gig at the end of the gig, they're like, Yeah, nice one, sweet, and off you go. And it's like, mm. Yeah, these people don't give a shit, but like, you know, mm. I'd leave those gigs and I'd be like, I cannot fucking wait till I am at a uh, point where you want to book me and I can tell you to stick it up your arsehole. And it's like, would you, Is that what you want people to think about you as a promoter? I don't
0: you know. Th- like, I, I, go on. I, I, I just think as, as a promoter, like, it's, it's your name and your brand, and you, you never know who you're going to meet. Like, as I said, I, ne- I didn't know who, who you was at the time. Matt said, can I bring my mate along? I actually thought, oh, he's, he's probably going to be terrible. He's trying some new material. And you come in and absolutely smashed it. But before you even got on stage, to me, I was grateful the fact that you even turned up and, and wanted to come along with Matt. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. But I think that's all, all the way through life. I've always made sure that i make made people feel as comfortable as possible because... At the end of the day, we're all in this together, really. Like yeah, of course, mate. No yeah. matter what it you're doing in life, like like you now putting on gigs, like as you said, you get unbelievable acts for you. But they want to do it for you because they know you're putting a good gig and they know what type of person you are.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you know, you make more friends that way anyway. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I just think like all the people that like earn their money by just being vindictive and treating everything like it's competition and just you know, don't want to, they want to protect their lot, you know, there's a lot of that going on, it's like, you feel like you've got a little piece of the pie, and you've got to protect that at all costs, but it's like, you know, there really is a little piece of everything out there for everybody, if you want it, you know mm. what I mean, you just got to go out there and fucking, and get it, and just not be, and try not to be a dick while you're doing it.
0: Do you remember that promoter, I can't remember his name, I will not say it anyway, but the, the pro, promoter, when was putting a show... Exactly. So- Do you remember? Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) And he remember, mate. Oh, my God. He
0: went round messaging everyone, didn't he, about, can't trust me. But then he had the exact same thing with you. Oh.
1: Mate, he... I mean, the problem is, is that, yeah, we've both got, like, horrendous stories about this guy and, like, he did the most, like, unbelievably underhanded stuff that was, like, so wild that you still can't believe that he would do a thing like that. But the geezer ended up getting sectioned. So it's like... (laughs) So I think, like, you know, he was genuinely mental. So it's like one of them ones, isn't it? Hardly <laughs> yeah, realise that. He's such a dickhead to me and I'd love to sit here and slag the gazer off. But, like, you know, in this day and age, I can't afford to get cancelled, mate. <laughs> 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 yeah,
0: I, I, yeah, I remember he was, he, yeah, he was a bit All right, who, who, Who is the best comedian you've ever worked with?
1: Ever worked with? Russell Kane, hands down. Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's brilliant comedians out there, they're all different flavours, they're all different types, and it's like it's like asking who your favourite musician is, but I can only speak for what I know and what I've witnessed. And, you know, I've watched him go from seven minute open spot to who he is now. I've seen every tour go from back of a fag packet to the final product. And there are not many people out there, mate, that can churn out gold the way he does it, the way he breaks down a room when he's been on stage that he's like it's just honestly incredible to watch him work mate really is and i've drawn a hell of a lot of inspiration from him he works so hard mate he works so hard and um and he's true to himself and what he wants to do and he's just he's found his audience he's brilliant on social media and you know he's he's an absolute machine mate and you know, although he is incredibly successful, Russell, he's like I still would say he's one of the most underrated comedians of our generation. I don't think people realise just how good he is, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I, I can agree with that completely. Do you remember the gig what you put on, on the Alex when me and my mate come down? And mm-hmm. uh he walked he, he got in there late, he walked in, he had no no material, he literally went backstage, wrote Eight or nine yeah. bullet points of what he was going to say. Come out on stage with, with a bit of pen and paper. Said, "Right, sorry, I've just wrote these. I'm going to see if they work." Every yeah. single one had the audience in stitches. i was just sitting yeah. there, and also I was, I was backstage. I was seeing him writing these bullet points down just on the top of his head. I think, "Have you, have you just that, come up that, like that night,
1: there? mate?" That what you witnessed there was the birth of his next tour. Like that, what mm-hmm. the, the basis those jokes were like the first ideas of that tour. And that that was his first gig to kind of rip the plaster off and like go, right, put that other tour to bed. This is the new one. And, you know, I ended up supporting him on that tour. So I see that go from, from that night to what it is. And it's like, you know, a lot of comedians, and I'm not speaking for all of them, there's a lot of brilliant comedians out there at the top of their game. But they're like, once you get to like your third and fourth, tour like you're creatively spent generally speaking right if you think about it like you your first tour you make it your first tour is all of your gold that you've been telling for 15 years or however long it's been that you've been going for your second tour is all the rest of it yeah like the third tour you got to write from scratch and you got a year to write it fourth tour the same fifth tour the same you know and it's like you're right that now you've got people that you are money to all these people So you've got They're all like Come on we need to get that next tour out Got the fringe to think about So you end up like Getting writers in and stuff And then it's like It's not But like Russell It's like It's fucking gold mate You know He was midway through His Fast and Curious tour When um, Covid hit Right So I think he had, We had about I had about four or five dates with him But I think in total We had about 15 to 18 dates Left to do of the tour Covid happened. Me and him did the Zoom gigs together, just so that he could keep. We could both just be writing, and we were doing them every week for, a, for like, uh, about six months or whatever. And then he, in that time, had written, rewritten forty minutes of the show. So like, had basically binned off the show, written a new show, and because he couldn't not talk about what had just happened, and the Guardian are calling it the the show, the comedy show of the year, and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, that is bionic, mate.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I, I think he's incredible. And I do think he's well underrated as well, because I think until I see him live in person, I don't think I actually realise how how good he really was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My best comedian I've ever worked with. Ricky Grover.
1: I love him. Yeah, yeah, he's a legend. I
0: think he was, I think he's very underrated as well. I think he's... He, yeah,
1: I agree, yeah.
0: Incredible. And it's it's a shame that he's actually not made it more because, obviously, we had him on the Romford gig, the Romford Golf Club gig together. I see him on a gig what you was on, you invited me down to. I can't remember who, whose gig it was now. The golf club, wasn't it? Romford Golf Club. Yeah, we done that, but then then you invited me to another gig what you was doing with somebody else. It was one of your friends. um Honestly, it was like Colchester way. Do you
1: remember that oh, one? Oh, yeah, mate. No, it could be. It, yeah. was,
0: it was on that, and I see him on another gig, I think, of yours as well. And uh, every time, it was just different, every single time, I just thought, how are you like, how have you not made it bigger than what you are? I, it, it doesn't yeah. make sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, again, I think there's so many factors at play, and I think, like, although, you know, I do think hard work trumps talent in a lot of ways, I also do believe that a lot of it is right place, right time. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you can just shit out and just not ever be in the right place at the right time. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I think maybe Ricky... I don't, I don't think it's as easy for working-class comics, mate. You know, I don't think it's like... If you look at the comedians that have made it, can, other than Mickey Flanagan, like, really think... And, like, you know, who that's working-class can you think of other than Mickey?
0: No, not Really?
1: You know, so I think like for and it's been you know he was one of the first sort of alternative ultra observational kind of working class geezers to properly blow, but it's almost like he's filled that gap. So now you know, is there any room for another one? Who knows? I mean, Ricky and Mickey were going around the same time on the same circuit. I'd even go as far as to say, well, definitely I'd say Ricky was was bigger than he was, both in stature and <laughs> and like and, uh. But you know, but Ricky, you know, Ricky is great, and he's he's enjoyed some success. He's done a bit of telly, and and you know, he, he's he's doing all right. He's living in Scotland now. Is it? Um, yeah, but he, but yeah, again, like just salt of the earth, just a lovely, lovely man, Ricky. Like ever since I was a boy, whenever he come down and giggled, he always like showed me the time of day, and was always lovely, and he's just a joy to watch, mate. Just a joy to watch.
0: He so he was a boxer, um, and my man used to train him, he was a middleweight boxer, really good. My man used to train him, but at the same time he was a boxer, he was my mum's hairdresser.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right, he was both those things, wasn't it? That's yeah. mad.
0: Mad not it. So obviously I've, I've known him for years and years and years, but yeah.
1: It's
0: it's incredible to think that he was a hairdresser, a boxer, now a stand up comedian. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's crazy, mate, isn't it? Yeah.
0: It's crazy. <laughs> Talk about talk about stories in your set, I mean.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, mate, he, honestly, he had some brilliant stories. He's, he was so funny. He was one of the best uh, reactions we had at um, Funny Bunnies, that first club that I ever did. I, I remember just it, it came on with this, like, the Hellraiser mask on, like, like this bald head with, like, loads of, like, pits in it. Or a Freddy Krueger mask thing in it. Like, just looked horrible. And uh like, long black overcoat, and he had that, Ba 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 bum bum, like really loud playing. He was walking to the thing, and he got to the mic and he cut the music and he went, "I'll tell you something, that little shit in it." <laughs> <laughs> and then pulled the mask off and he had another one on underneath it. It was like, "Oh, that's better." and <laughs> It was just like it was so silly. It had gone from being so dramatic, and he's such like a big. He feels the room, did not he? And it, and and like the, it was just so silly the way he pulled. <laughs> Back and instantly had <laughs> everyone in the palm of his hand, mate.
0: Yeah, he's great. Oh, he's brilliant. I did enjoy it. I miss, miss Comedy Nights. I really miss Comedy Nights. So, you put one up uh, earlier uh, in Chelmsford. Are you gigging that?
1: Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah. That's tomorrow. Tomorrow? Mm. How, what time? At a pie mash shop, mate. The home of showbiz.
0: I eat at pie mash shop. There you are, Yeah,
1: yeah. I had my first ever pie mash at that pie mash shop last week yeah Um yeah I'm there 8.30 start that is uh, Lenny Sherman on as well another East End legend
0: have they still got t- I see you put one ticket up I might see if I can get down tomorrow they just, still got a ticket do you reckon I'll be able to get you in I'm sure yeah yeah I'll have,
1: I'll have a work with them tomorrow but I'm sure I'll be able to squeeze you in mate you're only little aren't you ah,
0: well, yeah, no, no news for that mate <laughs> 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 i remember when we was doing the gigs together and you kept trying to get me to do stand-up yeah yeah, and, yeah. Uh, i said to my missus i was like ross ross is trying to get me to do stand-up sure but you're not funny and i wrote i wrote a set around that and then when it comes to yeah. me i nearly said i'll jump on and i was like no nah, do you know what i can't i just can't i haven't got it
1: oh mate. <laughs> Well, look, that, that stage at the Alex is always there for you, yeah. mate. Whenever you fancy it,
0: I'll, uh, I'll, I'll crumble. I'd, if I don't get one, <laughs> one good reaction or one heckle, I'd crumble. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you do it, mate. Um, so, for people coming up now in comedy, what's the best advice you can give them?
1: Keep going, mate. Don't expect like that your journey is going to be different and you ain't going to have to go out and tread the boards. You know what I mean? I see so many new acts come through the Alex, uh, do their first ever gigs and stuff. And some of them like I've got it, you know, they are good for a first gig so some of them are even brilliant, but very few of them really want to put in the work that's needed. I don't think anyone quite realizes that it's not cliche to say you have to tread the boards. Like you have to put in hours and hours on stage to hone your craft and get good um so yeah like if, you, if it's something that you really want you're really passionate about like keep pushing and think like try and think of everything in five-year blocks not in like one year mm. you know don't think oh this time last year i'm still doing the same gigs i was doing this time last year i'm not moving anymore. I'm not doing anything like think about what you were doing five years ago and then compare it with that you know five years ago you weren't doing comedy so like keep doing it and then like when you've been going five years then if you're in the same place as what you were five years ago maybe have a think about trying to say else you know what i mean but i guarantee you if you've put in the work and you you're still pushing it then you know you will be somewhere else in five years time and same in 10 years and so on and so forth just just remember that just by pursuing that you are already in the one percent of people who have got anything else other than the nine to five mate and that is amazing and you're also pursuing what i think in my opinion is the best possible thing you could do on this planet you're going around making people laugh mate like telling your stories and people are you're, you're literally giving them joy mate it's like mm-hmm. that is a, that is that's a bit disney but it's an absolute <laughs> buzz mate
0: <laughs> so where 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 do you see yourself in 5 years then or what what's the plans for you
1: well i mean like I try not to again because of the whole. Like, I think when you keep, it's good to have goals, obviously. But I try not to like think too far ahead because, like, it, this industry so cutthroat with the radio as well and the comedy. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you really just focus on what's right in front of you. You know what I mean? So it's right like to look back over the last five years, yeah, but and, like, yeah, I, I don't know whether I necessarily subscribe. It's like I say, it's good to have goals and it's good to have a clear idea of what you want. But like, if you, yeah, I'd say. In an ideal world for me, I'd like to go I'd like for me and John to get on national radio I think that that would actually feed like I'm ready to tour as a comedian me and John, we're on Radio Essex at the moment, and we are selling out theaters in essex, small theaters in Essex um uh with our own show you know what I mean so you get us on a national transmitter like xfM or something like that. I think we'd really Excel when we're ready to tour straight away. Mm. So and I think that then would be the springboard that I'd need to get start achieving my goals in comedy, like you know, live at the Apollo, being a touring comedian, doing never mind the buscocks, you know, all these like material things that are just like huge dreams of mine that I'd love to tick off. But you know, who knows, mate? Like on it, genuinely, and I truly mean this. If if, if this is what it is for me for the rest of my working life, I'm fucking happy. I'm I'm okay with that, mate. You know, I earn a living doing what I love, and uh, there's never a dull moment. Let me tell you.
0: No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased to see it. As I see it was probably up like ten years ago we we actually met each other, and to see sort Ooh. of like uh, you've always been to me, you've always been smashing. I've always thought you was unbelievable, but you, I feel like the last two, three years, I think, or, or, I think especially since COVID, you're just getting the recognition now what I think you deserve, and it's for me, it's such a brilliant thing to see. I, I just enjoy. I enjoy watching your content. I enjoy watching, like, seeing what you're doing on on Instagram. And every time you're local to me, I always try and like, I'll try and come down. If you let me know as a gig mate, I always try and come down. I, like, I love, I love awesome. watching. I love seeing seeing you do well, mate. I really do.
1: I really appreciate it, mate. mate. The feeling is mutual.
0: bro, oh, I, I know, mate. I know. Just, uh, just on the last one before we go, what, what are you? What have you got on now? So, what, what clubs do you run yourself? What gigs have you got coming up? Um, obviously talk about
1: your radio show everything, Anything you got got Well I'm um, I still I'm running my uh, new material New act night at the Alex in Southend Every Sunday night We just won uh, a couple of weeks ago the, uh, the National Comedy Award For best open mic comedy club in the south um, So we're officially One of the best spaces For new acts and new material in the whole country Which I'm super proud of And that's busy every week It's free to get in as well So super accessible even if you can't afford it uh that's little smash comedy.co.uk and on there you can find other little gigs that i'm running that are ticketed and stuff in at various places um my own stand up i'm I'm all over the gaff really I, I, you're probably best to follow me on socials and i post bits and pieces on there the ross mcgrain on insta uh, ross.mcgrain on facebook um and i am going up to the edinburgh fringe uh this year doing a full run up there so i'll be up there every day for 28 days <laughs> and i'll be doing um previews of the show that I'm taking up there at various venues around the south east uh, and beyond so yeah I mean I'd follow us on Facebook and, and you know I'll advertise those bits and yeah it'd be nice to see some people down there mate
0: yeah definitely man definitely mate it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you like always we've got to stop leaving it so long until we catch up
1: oh, no mate I'm an absolute nightmare <laughs> you've just got to keep asking me like you do Frank <laughs> keep on my case
0: <laughs> oh mate thanks appreciate your time Ross thank you very much
1: no, thank you, Frank. Always a pleasure, mate. And uh, get me on your gig soon, yeah?
0: Mate, definitely. I've actually... I am actually, uh, might not be able to do that gig. I just found out it's a 30-seater. Oh, okay. We've got to do it now. Um, So that changes the game a little
1: bit. Uh, hold on, let me just do some quick. Man. Yeah, I mean, there's not, not much scope to make money there, is there?
0: No, that's what I mean. So... I've got to try and work out if it's maximum thirty seat or they just said it's thirty seat because they've not actually tried it yet. Obviously, it's a new no bar in it, so. Oh um,
1: yeah, you could. I mean, you could obviously don't put this on the podcast, but you could go down the route of like having like a paid headliner and a paid MC and then new acts and sort of building it as like a new material new act night. Mm.
0: Um, I know that's the route that they want to go down as a new act night, um, but they want to get. <sighs> Again, they want to get people like Mickey Flanagan on trying out new stuff for tour. I said, it don't work like that. you got you got to do the graph before you can get get people like that. So, um, except, yeah, yeah. It's been mate's bar, so I'm going to go down in the next couple of weeks. I've set up the venue, see what I can do, see what's the best what we can do, and then I'll let you know. But I'll definitely yeah, get back into on, it, man.
1: No worries. Anything I can do, let me know.
0: Appreciate it, man. Thank you.
1: you chatting to you, mate.
0: You too, mate. Let me know about tomorrow.
1: Yeah, will do. Take it easy. Good, mate.
0: See you soon. Bye-bye.
1: Yeah, you mate. Bye.